I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And I'm pleased to be joined with my co-host today, Ali Sherry. Welcome, Ali. Thanks for having me. And in the studio is Harley Manning, who just hosted our CX New York event this week, where we showcased the 2018 CX results. Welcome, Harley. Thank you for having me. So, Harley, as you looked at the 2018 results, let's start with what's the big story? What's the big finding, the big aha that tells people where CX is in terms of its strategic impact to industries? Yeah. So, uh, customer experience overall uh, was uh, somewhat stagnant between uh, 2017 and 2018. And in fact, if you look at the three-year trend from 2016 to 2018, uh, we seem to be on a bit of a plateau. Uh, there, There was some movement. Uh, but the movement was uh, mostly the uh, people at the bottom uh, edging their way up into the okay category. Uh, the the top end players are pretty much the top end players, so they held on to their top positions but didn't really advance. So underneath that is is that the comment? You know, they fixed the things that were broken, making people less frustrated, so they sort of moved up. But CX as a strategic initiative has stalled because it's it's really looking at the cosmetic or easy things. It's not yet going to do what it might have intended to do at the beginning, which is to disrupt, to change the internal operations, tune itself to a, to a different kind of market. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair characterization. Uh, it's, it's easy um, to find specific problems and fix them. And you will see benefit. You will see economic benefit from doing that. Uh, it's not going to get you into a leadership position. In contrast, if you look at the leading companies, they have uh, customer centricity at the core of who they are. It's not just something that they do. It's not just a let's fix something broken. It's this is who we are. We or it's exist. not just a tagline. Right, exactly. We exist for purposes of benefiting our customers. Now, if you want to be like them, then you aren't going to be able to do that with this sort of break-fix mentality. You're going to have to go examine your core value proposition and who you are as a company. So when you looked at the results, and we'll get into industry-specific results in a bit, what was surprising to you? Well, I did think after we saw this last year that this year we would see a couple of the leading brands break out more because I know that they are working hard on innovations. Um, But we didn't see that. And I do expect to see that um, maybe next year, certainly the year afterwards, because they're doing all the right things and eventually they will see results from, from doing those things. I mean, for them... It's about innovating. It's about making improvements up and down their value chain. It's not about changing their core uh, mission. And they've already got that. Yeah, I think in a, in a prior discussion, you had said, and I thought this was kind of a, a cool way of looking at it, is those companies are very clear about their purpose, their mission, their brand. They're very clear of who their customer is, and they know them. What they're also very clear on is the dynamism that sits around that, which is they have to adapt to a market that will continue to move, which is they'll keep two things firm, but everything else is intended to be now very agile and nimble. Yeah, um, that's correct. So uh, they don't define themselves in terms of the specific things they're doing. They define themselves in terms of a mission, Uh, whether that's uh, USAA and financial services. They're number one in four different categories. They've been number one in four different categories for the last three years. Um, They say that they exist to uh, improve the financial well-being of their members for generations to come. That's, you know, and how they do that, that that has to be fluid. That has to change. JetBlue, they exist to bring a great travel experience. Kaiser Permanente at the top of the health insurers. It's another three-peat. For them, it's the same thing. They exist to improve the health and well-being of their customers. And so uh, how you do that 
not only can change, it has to change if you're going to be true to your mission. So I'm going to call on a, a specific dynamic that we see, and Ali, you had brought up before this discussion as it relates to USA and Navy Federal Credit Union. So these both serve members that are actually alike each other. The members come from the military, in the case USA, all the military, in the case of Navy, the Navy. So there's already a commonality of customer, and there's a, the mission sort of surrounds that. And in some cases, like if you're a company that serves many different customer segments, you don't have that community. You don't have that membership feeling. Is there any evidence of companies that actually did not have it day one but built it along the way? Yeah, there is. And, and I just want to point out something. Navy Federal and USA, two great companies. I mean, both terrific and both very much have customer experience improvement in their sites. USAA, one of the things that people uh, tend to get wrong about them. So there are about a million and a half active duty servicemen and women in the U.S. Uh, USAA does not have 100% market share of them, but USAA has 12.4 million members. So uh, less than 10%, no matter how you cut it, of their members are currently in the military. They are either people who did serve or the children of people who did serve or their grandchildren or great-grandchildren, husbands, wives, et cetera, who kept that chain. So um, USAA has grown beyond that core constituency themselves. We do see people re-engineering themselves. We do see them refocusing, and it's tough, and it's a, a long road to hoe uh, when, when they do that It's um, because you have to re-examine your core value proposition. Um, you know, Delta Airlines has taken a pretty good shot at it. Um, they, they've seen some some improvements. I think if you ask uh, some of the uh, people at the other big airlines who compete directly with them, I think American United would love to be able to have made some of the strides that Delta has made, for example. Um, but it's not as easy as being, for instance, JetBlue, which is our number one airline, again, three years in a row, um, Southwest Airlines. Both of those companies were truly founded in customer centricity and just stay on mission. Just to play on something that Victor brought up just now around the sense of community, it strikes me that it's not just a sense of community for your customers or your members, but it's also developing that sense of community or maybe it's the tribe internally that's focused on the mission and, you know, having that commonality helps drive people, helps them move more quickly in a more agile way. Would you say that's a fair thing to say? Yeah, that is. So um, let's let's shift to, you know, a much bigger company, for example, that uh, typically does well in the customer experience index, which is Vanguard, um, you know, over $4 trillion of assets under management. And they definitely have that. Uh, so they refer to their employees as crew. You know, they, their logo is that sailing ship and, mm -hmm. and they're the crew. And uh, they don't say it in an ironic way. I mean, they're serious about that. They have a, a, an esprit. They have this sense of their focus on, on uh, keeping the costs low and delivering high value. Uh, when you meet their people, you get that sense that they really want to do good for their customers. Uh, and partially, that's even baked into the ownership structure of the company where the funds own Vanguard and the individual shareholders own the funds. So yeah, we do see that. Uh, you see that at uh, Southwest. You see that at JetBlue. Um, you see that at uh, uh, Etsy is actually a really interesting company. Uh, they are so into what they do. What they do is they try to help these people who maybe have a day job and they found out that they could make something and they could sell it. And then there was some inflection point where suddenly they had to make a choice. They had to go do this thing full time and turn it into their business uh, or not. 
And these people are craftspeople. And so uh, Etsy takes upon itself the mission of actually helping these people turn into business people. So you have to feel a very sense of mission, and the Etsy customers do, uh, and you have to share that mission. You have to share common goals with your customers, and the customers can feel that. I want to go back to your point about Delta and United and American Airlines for a second as it relates to Southwest and JetBlue. So JetBlue, using that as an example, serves a, a fairly common customer segment, you know, consumers that are vacationing. It's not, it wasn't geared to serve the business class. It wasn't geared to serve them. It sort of came to be to serve sort of people who wanted to go on vacation, wanted to travel, and they wanted to have a good time along the way. Have we found any correlation between big companies that serve multiple segments that are different from each other, Delta, versus companies that are a little bit more narrow in who they serve, JetBlue, so that the experiences can be garnered or, or designed more so for that? Is there any distinction in the results that we saw? Yeah, so it is easier to serve a more cohesive community. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that it's a small community. Uh, you know, Etsy is pretty pretty darn big at this point, for yeah, example. As a, as a JetBlue in yeah, Southwest. And, and, yeah, and as, a, as JetBlue. Well, yeah, so Jet, JetBlue is, is pretty significantly large. Southwest, actually, I believe, is the largest domestic air carrier. But they were, you know, they were this uh, regional point-to-point airline, and the whole idea was, oh, they're just serving people who can't afford to travel, and people are willing to line up like a bus line, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they have grown so far beyond that while still keeping their core values of we love our customers, we make things simple. And over time, staying true to their model, they've added things like for business travelers, business travelers do increasingly travel Southwest, for example, uh, you could buy a, a place farther up in the line, for example, so that you're more likely to get your choice of seat. And that didn't erode their core value proposition at all. Uh, it didn't erode their experience at all. It just allowed them to expand their market and to satisfy a broader range of people. Now, JetBlue, what's interesting with them is although they uh, don't cater to the hardcore road warrior business travelers, they do have a lot of business travelers. I fly them all the time. I have a couple analysts who fly them exclusively unless they can't possibly get there from here. And uh, w- what they have done is they have been very thoughtful about, for example, they added their mint class, which is their equivalent to first class, which for years they you know, wouldn't do. But where did they add it? Well, they didn't add it into their smaller planes because they fly basically two types of craft. They added it to the longer uh, flights, so the bigger planes, and they did it in a way that did not erode the experience for the people who weren't flying mint. So, in fact, they find in their own measurement uh, program, which is very good, by the way, their, their voice of customer program is excellent. They find that the uh, people in the uh, back of the plane uh, on the flights that have the mint class actually report a better experience uh, than the people in the back of the plane without the mint class. So this is counterintuitive in a big way. Usually what happens- Yeah, I was about to ask the question, yeah. why? Why? It's because they didn't take anything away from the people in the back. Yeah. The, the experience is just as good as it was. And you can also see your way clear to you being up there in the front and in, in that mid-class. Let's look at a, another company, Subaru. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and compare that to Buick. So Subaru's had a relatively common sort of personality in the marketplace for a while all-wheel drive. It brings a certain class of folks together. It's what makes love. It has dogs in the commercials. You mm-hmm. sort of get the whole persona. Buick has gone through much more of a, a reshaping of its customer base from 
this is not your grandmother's or grandfather's Buick to being something much more current. How, what is our take on how Buick did so well? I mean, we understand how Subaru kind of locked in here, but Buick is a, a very interesting example in the automotive side of the house. Um, yeah, I think for all of them, it's about knowing your customer and trying to uh, portray, deliver an experience that aligns with their brand message to that that customer. I, I don't think Buick is ever going to have the kind of cult following that that Subaru uh, has. Uh, but you know, so this is this leads to sort of a, a, a bigger point, uh, which is that people tend to think that there's a platonic ideal of a perfect customer experience that would cut across all brands and all product types, and and that is not true. Uh, the right customer experience that will resonate with the customers of a particular brand is going to be the customer experience that delivers on the promise of that brand. And so uh, when you, you get your Subaru, um, it is about that delivering on that expectation that you have. Uh, when you get your Buick, it's about delivering that expectation that you have. And uh, you see, this is one of the reasons why this year, for the first year, we've broken out the mass market auto brands from the luxury auto brands because they're very different types of experience. And, and really, uh, those automakers, when they think about who their competition is, they do not, mass market does not think about luxury and vice versa. So for Buick, it's really walking the walk. So they've done a lot of advertising around, is that a Buick, pointing out, the high-end nature, at trying to get it at a different market, and then this is sort of paying out when someone actually gets in the vehicle, they own a Buick, they're, they're matching those two together. Right, exactly. And, and um, so Buick, I mean, the way you can think of it is uh, if a Buick driver gets in a Buick, they're getting that experience and they're feeling good. If a Mercedes driver got in that Buick, they would feel uh, disoriented, disappointed, unhappy. Uh, and it could be the same if a Buick driver and a Subaru driver traded vehicles. They'd probably instantly be unhappy with, with the new vehicle. I think that's important because, I mean, there, I know there's been a discussion about the tight relationship between purpose, brand, and experience. And mm -hmm. They should be sort of going in the same direction. And when, they, when there's dissonance among them, it causes confusion with the customer, which sort of plays itself out numerically. But here, the numbers are sort of proving the correlation, which there's a very strong purpose the brand reflects that purpose. The employees reflect the brand, and then the experience affirms the the brand uh, promise. I mean that that that's sort of showing up in these numbers. Yeah, it is definitely showing up in these numbers. Uh, there's a um, you know there's a direct and and it's it's funny because one of the things we didn't mention about the customer experience it's it's not uh, it's customer experience index that is you know it's not just a pure measure of how much people like the experience. It's literally a measure of uh, how well the experience drives customer loyalty. And so uh, just doing something that might make someone happy, but then doesn't lead them to uh, keep their business with your brand is not particularly useful. And so what we're really looking at here with these customer experience index score trends is the trend of how well customer experience is driving loyalty. And that's the more interesting thing for a business person, because what our current uh, readouts say is that the leaders who were driving strong customer loyalty before are still doing that. And the people who are behind them are not getting increased loyalty from customer experience. Yeah, in a podcast we did with Emily Collins, there was a there was a stark distinction made between loyalty programs that are centered on the customer and loyalty programs that are centered on the merchant. Meaning on the merchant is I'll just coupon you and email you and stuff like that. I just want to get you to the next transaction. As long as they hold on to those programs, they're just not going to see the uptick that you just described, Harley. However, if I orient my loyalty program like Prime 
to deliver experiences that are satisfying and different above the product purchase. Then I've, I've already reoriented my loyalty program. So the idea that that's still playing out sort of isn't surprising, I guess. Yeah, uh, not at all. And in fact, uh, we saw that this year in uh, Amazon's numbers, which ticked up. Uh, they definitely are doing a little bit more, or being a little bit more thoughtful perhaps, uh, or maybe just a little sharper in their execution about uh, who their core customers are and what delights them. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing with Amazon is that they've grown so fast and so far that there are customers that they're picking up who have not made Amazon a habit and are not fully bought into that Amazon experience platform. And for those people, their experience is not going to be as good. And that's okay, frankly, as long as Amazon keeps uh, that core going and keeps that those prime membership ha- uh, members happy. Let me look at two contrasts, if I could, for a second. Sure. One is the retailers that originated in a physical store mm-hmm. and those that are digitally native. Um, if you read the headlines, the argument would be that the digitally natives are would win the battle on CX. They'd win the battle on loyalty and experience. And the ones that grew up in a physical store are improving but struggling to get out of their old form. Did, did that play out? Um, to a certain extent, there's a pretty broad spread uh, in these brands uh, in the index here. So if you, for instance, look at the, uh, the, the digital retailers, uh, they have a similar high score. So the top scoring uh, uh, digital retailer is about on par with the highest scoring uh, multi-channel retailer. Uh, the uh, multi-channel retailers, though, have a much lower low score, and there are a, a bunch of them. So what we see when we start breaking this down and, and looking at these uh, retailers in, in more detail uh, is that some of the multi-channel retailers have done a much better job of, of leveraging the fact that they have their physical presence and connecting it to a digital presence. And the ones who have uh, uh, not done such a good job are the ones that are sitting there at the bottom and not, not going very far. So let's dig into the retailers a little bit more. So what is it about the the leaders within this space? Yeah, so the multi-channel retailers are very interesting. Uh, if you if you look at um, the top one this year, it's Trader Joe's because we've added uh, grocery stores into the index. And uh, uh, Trader Joe's has a very, very particular kind of brand proposition. Uh, you go in, you just... I hate to inject myself into this, but I'm going to just this one time. <laughs> I am not a big fan of grocery shopping. You know, <laughs> I go to our local stop and shop when I have to pick up like, you know, milk and bananas on the way home. Um, I, I just really dislike it. Uh, Trader Joe's, I really enjoy going into. I walk around. The stuff is cool. I always end up buying stuff I didn't plan to. It makes you seem cooler just by being there. Yeah. It, and I need that help. <laughs> you know me. I need that help. So, um, uh, you know, I get, and then I get to the checkout counter and wow, the price was way lower than I intended to pay. And so that's a very particular specific kind of proposition. It's very different from like a whole foods or from anybody else. Uh, and, and that resonates with a particular type of customer. Um, it, same thing. If you look at, uh, number three here, Neiman Marcus, Neiman Marcus is a radically different experience from Trader Joe's it's, you know, it goes along with the thing we were saying earlier, you know, you, you go in there expecting a luxury experience and by God, you get a luxury experience and the Neiman Marcus customer base loves Neiman Marcus. And so each of these companies, I would say has a, uh, a strong value proposition for a specific type of customer. What's an interesting parallel or comparison for me is you brought up Trader Joe's, which obviously has a very loyal following, a very digital following, sort of cuts across a wide swath of, 
of people, different generations. So I think of something like a home shopping network or QVC also having a very mm-hmm. exactly devoted base, but a very different base when you think about Trader Joe's. They're interesting to me to be at the top of the list. What's what's their story? QVC has a very specific type of customer that that they uh, appeal to. And this customer initially was a TV customer. And now it's an online customer as well as a TV customer. And they have a devoted uh, pack of people who find, you know, shopping is recreational for them (laughs) to a certain extent. You know, they want to find that unique item. They want to find that value item. But I think a key principle here, you know, sort of the cautionary tales to abstract it into like big ideas. But one of the big ideas is that companies that really understand their customers, serve them on their terms, mm-hmm. tend to do well and deliver against it, as you yes. described earlier, Harley. But but big box stores that serve multiple constituents, multiple customers, and are premised on foot traffic or zip codes or whatever, you know, basically build it and they will come logic scored relatively low. I mean, this is where the big range exists within this multi-channel segment. Yep. It tells us a little bit about some of the failures that we've seen, that there might be something underneath. It might be under things like Toys R Us or others that that build it and they will come. It's just not sufficient. What's really important in this sector is to be utterly devoted to, passionate about, almost maniacal about who your customer is and serve them on their terms. I mean, there's a lesson inside these numbers. There is, and you can take this up a level. It's, it's not just about retailers. Uh, it's about knowing that your, your core mission is at the right level of abstraction. And what I mean by that is if you think that your mission is to sell people stuff in a big store, then you are prone to disruption. If you think that your mission is to deliver uh, large quantities of products at a low cost that creates a good value, and then you start thinking about how best to do that, then you will prosper. I mean, you look at Blockbuster, which thought its mission was to let you go into a big box and come out with a paper, later a disc, versus Netflix, which initially always had its mission that it wanted to get you entertainment and help you avoid uh, late fees on, on movie rentals. And so Netflix transitioned so gracefully into the current uh, format that we see it in, and the rest is history. So this is the comment of render sacred your purpose, render sacred your customer, but the how you do that has to move with the times. That is, And once you lock yes. the how down, you're in trouble because other people will find a better how, a better mousetrap. Yeah, if there is if there's one lesson to take away from this, it is that, yeah. that you have to be clear on who you are as a company and who you serve and how, and then the how you serve them, that has to be fluid. So because I'm tech savvy, I'm going to be able to ask you a question about over the top and the cable companies. Um, you know, here we do see a separation. So this is bringing your Netflix example forward, Harley, which is, and what threw me about this one and giving you the answer and set the question, which is I would have expected to see that consumers of Netflix or consumers of Hulu would, ha- would place higher expectations, levy higher expectations against them because they're comparing it to an Amazon Prime kind of experience. And people would therefore somewhat exonerate the Comcast or AT&Ts of the world because they simply would levy different expectations about them. But we didn't find that to be true. We found out there was the same expectations and, and thusly you see the scores diverge from each other. Yeah. So you have to be careful when you frame up where the customer expectations are coming from because the customer expectation... So what? let's back up for a second. Who are these customers and what do they want? So 
If you are a cable customer, uh, and specifically I'm talking about the TV subscription offering, not the ISP offering. If you're, if you're a cable TV customer, what you want is to be able to access a broad range of video entertainment when you want it, et cetera. Uh, and that's what those companies offer. Over-the-top providers offer exactly the same thing. And so as a customer, uh, how do I want to achieve my end goal? Do I want to go uh, to uh, Verizon Fios On Demand? Or do I want to go to Netflix and see if it's available on Netflix, in which case I can don't have to worry about did I miss the season, like did season one of this thing go away? No, season one is always there because Netflix knows that people want to binge watch. And so my need to consume video entertainment is typically going to be better met by a Netflix or by a Hulu or by one of these other services where they have that entertainment always available to me to consume the way I want. That's what's the sh where the shift is going. It's going, uh, you know, just in terms of how I'm meeting that need. Can we talk about the federal government for a second? Oh, let's. <laughs> so they seem to have the widest stretch of rankings. So they have the lowest uh, ranking out of the bunch, um, and then their highest isn't all that high. So w what's going on there? Yeah, they, they, they have the lowest low score. They do not have the lowest industry average, interestingly. Um, internet service providers uh, manage to do that. Uh, but yeah, they had, there's a huge, huge spread. Uh, first thing to keep in mind is that uh, for the federal government, loyalty, uh, customer loyalty takes on a different meaning. You're not going to shift to a different government. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you can't. Uh, but what it means uh, for the federal government, why they care about it is because they want you to uh, comply with their directives. Uh, like the IRS wants you to file your taxes correctly and on time. National Park Service wants you to get a permit before going there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they want you to use some of these um, more advanced, extended, optional services that they offer. And you are only going to do that if you like your basic interaction with them. Uh, so they have a different mission, um, but they're very focused on that mission. They are truly mission-driven. Uh, and there are some government agencies uh, that are doing really quite well. The National Park Service, uh, despite the fact that it is working with a very constrained budget and has had all kinds of other things happen to it that it not its fault, um, gets a pretty darn good score. It gets it's a, an outrageously good score. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it really does. It is right in there competitive with a lot of uh, really top consumer brands. Um, and then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, of course, you know, people still don't love healthcare.gov, even though there's been an improvement to it and, and due, due to diligent work, et cetera. Uh, but it carries a lot of baggage. I don't know if anybody's ever going to really love the IRS since uh, <laughs> they're taking that money out of your paycheck. Uh, but it's but hard to love. It, it is. It, they are hard to love, and and I think they're pretty they're pretty uh, realistic about that. But you do see innovations coming out of the government, and you do see a lot of people working very diligently to try and improve customer experience. And in some cases, like with the National Park Service, um, they are actually succeeding at this. So. Um, they have a couple of brands, not just the National Park Service, that are up there in the rankings. And um, uh, we expect, because they are truly, I mean, there's a, there's a mandate. that they have been. There's an executive mandate uh, for them to, over time, get their customer experience to be competitive with that of the uh, commercial market. And they've been directed to do that. It's not optional. They are required to do that. And the ones that we talk to actually are enthusiastic about doing that. They want to do that. Uh, so I would expect to see that that number rise over time. So we we talked about what were the what was the big sort of thoughts coming out of this, and we mm -hmm. just went through some of the different industry examples. 
The results tell us a lot about what the CEOs, leaders, and CX professionals will do in the next year. Mm-hmm. Because there's their, as you said earlier, there's a very tight relationship between CX performance and revenue performance or growth. So what are the big lessons? What, what do you think goes from these results to other people's whiteboards? Because this is a stuff they have to do more of, less of, or different than. Yeah. So if you want to be one of these leaders and you want to see the resulting improvement in growth and profitability that that these people see, uh, you need to look to your core company strategy. I've touched on that a couple of times, but it is the most important takeaway because the leaders, that is the main thing that they have in common, that they are all about a customer-centric mission for their company. Yeah, and the way that you and I talked about, I'm sorry to interrupt you for a second here, but is that one way to think of CX is CX is my company. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. That's it's just who are. I am. Yep. The other way to look at it is CX is an initiative. It's other than, it's different than, and therefore it intervenes on the company, whether that's successful or not is to be, to be seen. Just that fundamental sort of fork in the road to me describes a little bit about the leaders and the people that are not the leaders. The advice I would give depends upon who I'm talking to. So for those companies who want to make big customer experience improvements and aspire to be among the leaders, I would say look to your core strategy. You have to put customers at the center of your business strategy. To both those types of people, the aspiring to be leaders, and to the actual leaders, I would say take a look at your entire value chain. Take a look at everything from uh, your logistics to what products you carry uh, to how you think about customer service, uh, because ultimately all of those things have to align if you are going to deliver that end great customer experience. Yeah, one of the observations we made last year as it related to CX was that CX initiatives were formed, the teams were formed, mm-hmm. very talented people with far too little political clout. So when they try to drive operational change, organizational change, things that were internally disruptive to reflect the external disruption, they really ran into the buzzsaw of the entrenched organization. They had a trouble sort of fixing the things that you just described. What are, what's the tricks of the trade? How do you get it so that they rebalance the idea of the mandate they have, which is ultimately the customer delight and the economics with the political clout they don't have to do those big things? Yeah, uh, it, that's, a, that's a long answer, but I'll keep to just one point, which is they need to learn how to speak business. Uh, so if you're a customer experience uh, professional or if you happen to get the nod to improve customer experience, when you go talk to your CFO or your COO or your CEO, and I've been in a lot of these conversations, uh, don't talk about we're going to get a two percentage point increase in our net promoter score. Talk about Uh, how you intend to improve the customer experience, what the business result will be in terms of extra revenue or extra profitability, uh, and then conclude with the cost of that project and put an exclamation point on it by telling them what the ROI is. Otherwise, you walk in and you say, we should do this because it's good for our customers, thinking, well, geez, it's obvious, but it's not. The financial outcome trumps altruism. Financial outcome is a critically important part of uh, getting funding, always. So, Harley, taking a step way back, these results were driven from our CX index, which looks at quality as it drives loyalty. And inside quality, importantly, is the concept of emotion, which is, as we've seen time and time again, is the biggest driver of change. How, how much affinity, how much am I participating in the business, and how much do I feel value to those types of things? 
So as you look at these results and look at the state of the market, the state of the state of digital, the pace of innovation, what does it mean to companies that are sort of seeing themselves in a market of constant external disruption and constant pressure from customers to bring CX forward as a growth engine? So what we have seen consistently over time, and we're seeing it again this year, is that the companies that have uh, the standout customer experience are the ones that grow faster in terms of acquiring and retaining customers, grow faster in terms of revenue. They tend to be very profitable, and this tends to be something that we see year after year after year. So if you want to be a company that can withstand some of the changes and disruptions and the ups and downs with technology and getting hit by things like GDPR, Deliver a customer experience that's going to make your customers love you. Because when we look at the emotional aspect and the customer experience index, these brands that are at the top are loved. They have customers who say they feel appreciated, respected, valued, and those customers who feel the most respected, appreciated, and valued are the ones who are most likely to stay with you longer, spend more with you, and recommend you. So the equation is quite powerful. Thank you, Harley, and thank you, Ali, for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners interested in exploring the CX Index and more specifically exploring how to convert CX into a growth engine, please visit us at forrester.com slash CX Index. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.